So, best piece of advice. Did you think of something right there on the spot that your family members gave you? For me, it was my grandmother. My, I grew up with my grandmother at home. My grandmother was, lived with us. And the uh, piece of advice, she probably told it to me a couple hundred times, was, um, Don creíque y don pensé que son hermanos de Don Tonteque. Sorry, it doesn't translate into English at all. <laughs> but it's life-changing. <laughs> it's not life-changing. It was irritating. It was, um, I, I, I'm not even going to explain it. Uh, <laughs> I want to invite you to open your Bibles, please, and, and turn to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Um, in, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the sea rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. Page 495 on those. We're using, if you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we're using the NIV, the New International Version. We're in a series uh, called Finding Our Way Back to God. It's, a, it's an eight week series through the book of Esther. We're in week five of that. And today and next week, we got a two parter. We're going to plant ourselves in Esther chapter four for a couple of weeks. And the, uh, the, the subject is what we desperately need in a time of desperate need. And uh, we have those times in our lives, and Esther and Mordecai, the two main characters, are experiencing that in this story. So uh, maybe you've heard of G.K. Chesterton. He lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he was a, um, a writer, a humorist, uh, an apologist for Christianity. I mean, he wrote a lot of books on Christianity and was kind of a C.S. Lewis of his day, a British guy. Um, a little bit earlier than C.S. Lewis, but uh, still, still a really important writer into today. And there's a, a legend. I call it a legend because I've heard the story many times, but I, you, know, you wonder, did this really happen? Uh, but supposedly he and some other literary figures, uh, they were in a panel or something, they were asked, if you only had one book that you can take to a deserted island, what would it be? And the first guy said, I would take the works of Shakespeare. And the second guy said, I would take a Bible. And then they turned to Chesterton, and, and everybody expected he would say, well, the Bible, or that he would say some theological work or something, but he didn't. His answer was, I would take Thomas' guide to practical shipbuilding. <laughs> so uh, we're looking today at, you know, what, what do you need in a time of desperate need? Fortunately, we don't have to choose just one thing, and, uh, and it doesn't have to be practical versus spiritual. It's going to be a mixture of both. So we find ourselves uh, in a part of the story of Esther. We introduced this last week where the bad guy Haman, who is the right-hand man to the king, is going to uh, eliminate the Jews from the Persian Empire. He's going to, he's, he's, cooked up a plan for killing them all off. It's genocide. And so if you're new to the book of Esther, or if it's you know, new to the series, or you've missed a few weeks, or maybe you've read Esther before, but you don't remember the story, let me give you just a quick recap. The Jewish people right now are in exile. They're living in Persia. Many have returned to Jerusalem. They've been allowed to return, but this is some of the people that stayed behind and uh, had established their homes. And and, and everything. And so they're, they're living in Persia, and there's two main characters. There is Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai is her cousin, but older, and adopted her when her parents died. And so Esther and Mordecai are very clearly assimilated into the larger culture. They still 
see themselves as Jewish, but a lot of what makes them distinctively Jewish is gone, aside from just the basic culture and identity. Uh, they are not keepers of the Jewish law or anything, and, and it's very clear by their lifestyle and the choices that they make. So, uh, enter Haman. He uh, rises to a place of prominence. We don't know why, but he's given a place of prominence, and he decides uh, to take it out uh, to, to attack all the Jews. There's an ancient, his ancestors and Jewish ancestors were at war for a long, long time. And so he decides to wipe out the Jews and Mordecai, oh, and Esther has become queen. And so Mordecai comes to Esther. He's a court official, but he comes to Esther. And we're going to see today how he asks her to intervene with the king uh, so that the Jewish people won't be wiped out. And it's a very dangerous thing for her to do, as we're going to see, and why it's dangerous for her to do. And she's going to need to, make a, she's going to, need to decide, am I going to take a stand or not? Because she's been hiding her Jewishness, as has Mordecai until last month, uh, last week, uh, chapter 3. So, uh, through this chapter, we're going to see desperate, uh, Esther in a desperate place and having a desperate need and we're going to see what she needs, and we're going to see all the kinds of things that we need at that time that are the same as Esther. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to uh, jump into today's passage, and this prayer is based on Romans chapter 12. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a faithful and holy God. You have chosen us and set us apart for your glory and your purposes. We look to the truth of your word and we stand on the strength of your promises. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you empower us to follow you faithfully. Lead us to walk in your will and in your ways as you remind us of who you are and of who we are in you. Father, as we uh, look forward to this next week, we think of the Fall Fun Fest that's coming on Friday night and the impact that that can have on so many people's lives, especially those that we're inviting maybe you don't have a church home, Father, I pray for openness uh, to come and just have a good time as a family. And I thank you, uh, Father, for uh, this opportunity for, for us to, to gather and, and to just the joy uh, that the kids have with this and the families have with this. So we, we pray for an effective evening and um, we pray that it will uh, produce fruit for you. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's read Esther chapter 4, and then we'll, we'll look at what we desperately need. Beginning in 1, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. So there's been this decree that has gone out. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's uh, eunuchs assigned to attend her to, to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city and in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. 
He also gave them a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, so now he comes to Mordecai, says all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I have been called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your fam father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. All right, we're going to look at two things that we need this week, three things next week when we have a, a desperate need. And the very first thing is we have to have a vision of how things actually are. In other words, sometimes there is a desperate need and we're not even aware of what it is. There might be a desperate need in the life of someone else uh, that we should be caring about, but we're not caring about, or something that's happening in our society, but we're unaware of. So one of the interesting and instructive things about this story is that Esther uh, is so isolated and so insulated in the palace that she actually doesn't even know what's going on. She's like a stone's throw, literally a stone's throw from the seat of power over the entire empire. And she seemingly is the only Jewish person in the entire empire, which stretches all the way to India, who doesn't know about this edict. And it's understandable because, I mean, it, 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 just consider, Mordecai can't even enter, can't even come th to the king's gate because he's mourning. So it's like, it's like any bad news, keep it outside. We don't even want to hear any, any bad news in here. So her situation is quite unique. None of us live in a palace uh, as part of uh, the king's, you know, whatever. But, uh, but we can see how actually we sometimes live pretty insulated and isolated lives, and it can happen to us. And we are so insulated and isolated sometimes that, that we fail to respond as our faith is calling us to respond. So I want to talk about some of the reasons for that. And uh, because I think when we understand some of those reasons, it can start changing our behavior. And I'll give you an example from my own life on this. So the first one is, is affluence. That's one of the things that can help, uh, that can keep us from really understanding some people's pain and some things that people are going through. And there is a clear link, I mean, in study after study after study, there's a clear link between affluence, wealth, and uh, diminishing capacity for compassion and empathy. 
And you've heard me give this example before, but there was a study that was done, and this was a series of studies. This was only one study that they did to try to test this, and one of them was this. Uh, they go to a town where the law is that cars have to stop if a pedestrian is crossing at a corner. And so they have researchers in the bushes <laughs> kind of off, and they are noting what cars stop and what cars don't stop. And so they've got a timed exactly when a car approaches from a certain angle, certain distance, the person steps out. Is plenty of time to stop, but also enough time to just press on the gas and go through, all right, without killing the person. And so they do this and they record example after example. When they're done, what they discover is the cheaper the car, the more it stops. The more expensive the car gets, the less it stops to the point when they got to the luxury cars, no one stopped. Not one luxury car stopped. Now we understand the luxury car is not driving itself. Well, maybe some are. <laughs> but I think those would stop. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's a person driving, of course, those cars. And so another study where they actually look at the brain, they, they show pictures of suffering, and they look at the brain to see what's happening. There's a part of the brain that, that there's certain things that happen in that part of the brain. And the more wealthy people are, the less their brain fires looking at those, at those pictures to the point that one of the researchers says it literally, and this is using the word literally, literally, it literally is a compassion deficit that's produced by lots of wealth. That doesn't mean, this is generally speaking, it doesn't mean every person of wealth and affluence and it doesn't mean that it always is going to be. It's just, generally speaking, in larger numbers. And there's ways of mitigating it. There's actually things that we can do to mitigate it. But if we don't recognize it, and if it doesn't matter to us, we're not going to do the things that, the mitigation techniques, the ways to, to grow our compassion are not easy. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that usually means getting outside of our usual experiences. And so... Esther is insulated and isolated because she lives in what is the most sophisticated gated community that you can possibly imagine, right? She lives in a palace. But you don't have to live in a gated community to live a gated life, and there's all kinds of reasons for this. If you, if you have a really good job that pays uh, you know, really good salary, so you make really good money, you likely, not always, but you likely work with other people who also make very good money. And then you move into neighborhoods with other people who also make really good money. And your kids go to school, and if you're a kid, you go to school with other kids that make really good money. Now, there's, there's even there, you know, there can be a big gap, but where the starting point is usually making pretty good money. And play sports with other kids who, and around other parents, you know, kids who make really good money. Go to churches where most of the people go, make pretty good money. And what winds up happening is we wind up separating ourselves from people who have a whole set of problems and struggles that are not in our lives. It's not that we don't have struggles. You know, there's still cancer, there's still broken families, there's still drugs, there's still other addictions, there's all that stuff, but there's a whole category of troubles that we separ separate ourselves from. And um, unless we intentionally counter that, uh, we can become, you know, kind of unaware of or really empathetic, and we think they're simple answers when 
if we were in there and with, we would never suggest our simple answers because we would know those simple answers are just simplistic. So that's one of the ways that we can keep from knowing really the suffering that some people experience. Another way is just by being an optimist. And some people are wired for optimism, and I'm not suggesting we should be pessimists. But take, optimism taken too far, and that can happen, optimism taken too far is, uh, kind of ends you in a kind of a fantasy, everything is going to work out type of world. And that's not true. Fantasy, everything's going to work out, is not, it's not how things actually happen. And so um, that's one of the ways that we can become insulated because we just kind of, everything's okay. You know, that kind of a thing. Another way that we become insulated from suffering is calculated ignorance. I say calculated ignorance because we all have at our fingertips all the information that we need, although information is not enough. People relationships are really important. But a lot of times we have the information that we need, but, but we live in a culture where happiness is like the ultimate goal. And it can't help but rub off on us. I mean, that's part of what this whole series has been about, right? Is that when you live in a culture that is very counter to what we're called by God to be, that one of the things is it, it, it rubs off on us and it begins to impact how we look at life. And, and so we get caught up in that happiness thing. And then so what happens is, is we don't really want to be around or read about or see, you know, something that is going to impact that happiness. And so we, in a very calculated, calculated way, make ourselves oftentimes ignorant of what actually people are going through. And that's especially easy to do because of this last one. And this last one is huge, and that's distraction. We live in a distracted society, especially now. I mean, it, it, was, it was bad 20, 30 years ago as television, you know, 40 years ago as television took hold of our lives. Now we carry, you know, like a little mini television everywhere we go. And we're constantly looking at that. And we are world-class experts at distracting ourselves. In other words, if we have a negative thought, we can quickly stop thinking that. <laughs> Just all I got to do is pick up my screen and start reading something <laughs> or looking at something else so I can distract myself. If something upsets me, if something like goes deep and says, boy, you really need to think about this, it's like, but it's going to be hard. It's like, you know, let's, let's move away from it. There's a, a book I was reading a few months ago by Alan Noble called uh, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. And his whole first chapter is all on distraction. By the time I was, I mean, he's coming at it from the angle of two things, how we become distracted, but also how difficult it is to... Uh, to help people see the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done because it's going to be so disruptive in their lives but that they're just like, yeah, sounds okay. Think about something else <laughs> because that's how we live our lives. But this impacts our lives as well. We have huge chunks of time that we used to spend towards thinking and reflecting that now we spend looking at screens. I mean, huge amount of times. It is like, Impossible to get bored in this day and age. You know, I've never heard anybody say I was bored anymore. Um, I remember as a kid being bored. I mean, we'd sit around, you know, trying to figure out what we're going to do now. We're just a little bit bored, you know, that kind of thing. Nobody gets bored anymore. And there's a lot of science on this, of course. 
And, um, and one of the things that he shows in that chapter, what it does to our brains, and his conclusion is, he says, from all this stuff, what it basically says is we have tired, scrambled brains. So with all the, we switch ideas, we're constantly, one thing or another, the screen, one thing after another, it, it literally fatigues and scrambles our brains. And because of that, we're often unable to process challenging or deep ideas. Because of that, we have more information than ever before, but we're over, overwhelmed by the number of decisions that we have to make. Because we have more information, we have more choices, and so we're just like, and we, we make bad decisions because we're overwhelmed. Because of this, we are, we are as a society, and you've seen this, I think, in some of your conversations with people, we are a people that can hold completely contradictory ideas at the same time and not be bothered by it. There was a day when if you were talking to someone and they said this about life and the value of life and then said this about, you know, life and the value of life, and they didn't connect, there was a day when you might get someone to actually think about it, but now people are like, well, you know, move on to something else. And so hold contradictory ideas at the same time because we don't want to think too deeply about it. And then added on top of that, we tend to jump from one idea, one worldview, one cause to another. So one week, it's like global warming. The next week, it's like water in Africa. And the next week, it's like poverty in the inner city. And it's like, what about global? Well, they've moved on to something else, or we've moved on to something else. And then finally, we don't spend very much time in reflection because of this. And the reality is there are deep questions that we ought to be thinking about, but they require reflection. And the gospel itself, the story of God, requires, calls us to deep reflection about God, about our world, about our guilt, about the story that we're living in, we're supposed to be living in, about our habits, the Apostle Paul said, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That can't happen if you don't think and you don't reflect. But we've taken away the margin to a great degree with screen time. Now, I saw this starkly in my own life. When I read Alan Noble's chapter, it was back in June, I was like, wow. So I've been thinking about it and thinking about it and kind of watching my own behavior, but it really hit me in the face when my mom was dying a few weeks ago. So in that final week, just so happened Lois was out of town. Um, when she stopped responding and she stopped eating and she stopped drinking water and she lasted almost a week. And so I was spending a lot of time in the room with her at the hospice home. And um, just hours and hours alone with her and no, no response. And so I don't like to be bored. I'm an information junkie. Uh, so I tried to do some work, but it was hard to concentrate. I'd do, you know, some sermon research. I'd try to answer some emails. But after a while, my brain was like, I can't, I can't really think. And so um, I, don't, I don't really, you know, page through Facebook or Twitter or anything like that or Instagram. I, I'm more of a news junkie, an information junkie, so I just, I go to Apple News Feed, and then I go to Google News Feed until it just feels like I'm starting to repeat myself, <laughs> you know, like they're hitting the same stories. 
And I can do that for a long time and uh, read and just get more information. In fact, if I have a lot of free time like that, in a sense, sitting there, it's like this is, oh, wow, I've got all the time I want right now to just read through the news feeds or read some of my favorite Christianity Today or World Magazine or Gospel Coalition stuff, uh, you know, that kind of a stuff. It's like, you know, perfect time. And I realized partway into it, I thought of that Alan Noble and the distraction, and I thought, I am basically filling all my time here with information. I watched a couple of movies on my iPad. And it hit me, my mom is going to die here. And when I think back, I will have spent almost no time really thinking about her and her life and the impact on my life and death, just death in general. And I'm going to have a lot of regret. And so what I would do is, um, I mean, I, I wasn't going to sit there and stare, you know, for hours, but I would literally stop, you know, every half an hour, 45 minutes. I'd just bend over the bed and I'd hug her and I'd kiss her on the neck. I still feel, you know, just, still feels like it was just yesterday. And, um, and I started a list of things I wanted to say for her tribute at her service. And I started a list of things I was thankful for. Just I called it a gratitude list. I was reading through that just this week. Things that impact of her life on me. Um, I started a new prayer card. I use a prayer card method. It's, a, it's, it's an app, but it's, it uses the prayer card method. And so I started a new card um, to pray for, not pray for, but pray about people in my life, like my grandmother, like my mom, like my godfather, who had a profound impact on my life and I love deeply, but are no, who have died. And so now that pops up every couple of weeks, and I just spend some time in gratitude, thanking God for their impact on my life. And um, when I was done doing that, I, I thought, I hope, I hope my kids do that uh, to remember me. Uh, because you're sitting there, at my age, you're sitting there, you're going, it's not that long from now. And I could be there or in some other way dying. Um, I mean, we can die any day and at any age. I am much closer. <laughs> Should I die just a natural death? I am much closer, of course, to that. And, um, and so I had a, a, an extremely rich time, and I would have missed all that if I had just done all my ways of being distracted. Um, we need a vision of how things really are in our world so that we can understand for such a time as this, I am where I am and be there <laughs> and be there for others and learn from God in those situations. And we need to be careful about the amount of distraction, insulation, all the things that we do to keep from really knowing how things are. If we're going to really grab onto what we desperately need, the very first thing that we need is we need to understand our, our own situation and our world situation as Christians. There's one other thing really quick on this point, and that is that we need to understand the reality of our influence. So look at verse 14, the last sentence of verse 14, when he says, 
Mordecai says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's one of the greatest lines in Esther. It's actually one of the greatest lines in the Bible. It recalls Joseph's words to his brothers after the dad has died. They had sold him into slavery. They're afraid now he's going to exact his revenge because he was in slavery and then he was in prison. He had many, many years, 12 years of suffering before he arrived to a, a top position in Egypt. But he said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He preserved, Abraham, he preserved Abraham's descendants by being in that place in Egypt. Wherever you are is where God wants you to be an influencer for good and for his kingdom. Wherever you are. We really get caught up in our agendas. It's really easy for that to happen. We forget that where we are is a mission field, whether it's the department you work in, the, class, the classes that you're in day in and day out. Um, whether it's the neighborhood you live in, the sports team you play on, the sideline you stand on while you watch your kids play, this is your mission field. This is, my, this is our mission field. But if you and I are insulated from reality, we miss all kinds of opportunities. So that's the first thing that we need. First thing we desperately need is, is to get a vision of how things actually are. The second thing and last thing we're looking at today is we need a courage born of conviction, born in conviction. Now, it takes a while for Mordecai to uh, get Esther to actually see what the situation is. You have this back and forth, this unit going back and forth with these messages. And still, once she gets a vision of how desperate things actually are for her and for her people and for Mordecai, she's hesitant to actually do what Mordecai is saying. And there's good reason for it. She probably feels it's hopeless. There's yeah, I know I'm the queen, but I haven't been called in for 30 days. It looks like he's moved on to other women in his harem. And the law is, the historian Herodotus from that period said, yep, you show up before the king without being invited, you're dead, unless he uses a scepter, um, uh, allows it. And so she's like, and even if I do, this man doesn't respect women. We learned that in chapter one, right? So this man doesn't respect women. So I don't see how I'm really going to be able to help. But Mordecai's words break through. Look at verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family, father's family, will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's an incredible speech on many, many, many levels. Faith somehow that has been dormant and suppressed in Mordecai has broken through. He says, look, if you remain silent, there is still going to be relief and deliverance. There, that is a statement of faith. It's going to come from someplace else. God is going to do something. And, and what seems to be happening here in the story, if you know the rest of the story of God, a little statement like that, what does that mean? Well, it means that God had promised Abraham in a covenant that he will preserve the Jewish people, no matter what, even if they fail to keep the covenant. Uh, the, the prophets before the exile said, 
You're going to be defeated by foreign kings, but I will preserve a remnant because my people will not be wiped out. The story goes on. The plan goes on. So Mordecai is saying God's ultimate plan will not be thwarted. He's not saying it's all going to work out for everyone, even if you don't help us. It's not what he's saying. He's saying God's, God will preserve his people. It doesn't mean he's going to preserve every one of his people. And then what about what he says to Esther? Sounds almost like a threat. So you realize even, you know, deliverance is going to come, but you're going to die, and your family's going to end, which might mean that except for the remnant, you're probably not going to be part of the remnant. You're going to be wiped out as well. But it also might mean, I really lean in this direction, that what it's saying is that when God comes through in another way, you will have, you will have so cut yourself off from God's people that you will essentially not be part of God's people anymore. The reality is that when we consistently refuse to publicly identify with God out of fear for ourselves, there comes a point when we have essentially declared a new allegiance apart from and contrary to God. Live your life. Claim to be a Christian, but live your life in such a way that you secretly, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't tell anybody. My allegiances are really with my, you know, uh, my own success or with my family above everything else or whatever it might be. Do that long enough, and essentially what has happened is you have made a new allegiance. You probably never, theologically I would say you never did have an allegiance with God. Now, this, this, um, this serves as a warning to us because we have to ask ourselves, with whom are we aligning our lives with in reality? With whom are we aligning our lives? A secret, privatized faith, talked about this week one, is completely contrary to what God called his people to in the Old Testament, to what Jesus called his disciples to in the New Testament. God called his people to do um, and be signposts for him that point towards God. Now, the more we're aligned and assimilated with our culture, the harder it is to, be, to act in courage, right? I mean, this is just common sense. Cur to act courageously for God, to stand up for what is right in God's eyes, becomes less and less of a po possibility the more we align ourselves with culture, culture because courage requires sacrifice. But we're not likely to sacrifice for truth when we buy into what the culture says, which is truth, well, it's relative to who you are. What's true for you and what's true for me. You're not going to sacrifice for that concept of truth. Nobody sacrifices for that concept of truth. Um, the whole idea in, um, in Persia uh, was, uh, well, I, that's actually, I'll bring that up a little bit later. Um, think about 9-11. You, if you weren't alive during that point or you were too young, um, let me just tell you that right after 9-11 happened and the horrors of you know, planes crashing into buildings, people jumping out the windows, all the horrors that happened with that, and that some people would actually bring, you know, plan and then execute those horrors. All of a sudden, the president comes on TV and starts talking about evil powers and access of evil and all this kind of stuff, and, and everybody's like... Uh, Nobody's talked like that for a long, long time. Because the talk, you know, more on the news and television is more, it's kind of a relative thing, you know, to, to those people over there, we're terrorists, right? And they may be terrorists to us, and so we take this kind of neutral position, but then you see this horror and you go, no, there's something fundamentally different about this. 
this, this, this sect within, you know, this way of thinking within Islam. There's something fundamentally different, and it's evil. And people started calling it. It didn't last very long, but, you know, it lasted for a little while. You, when you need to take a stand, you are not going to take a stand on something that is just true for me. You're going to live and let live even though everything is going to fall apart. We're not likely to sacrifice when there's no overarching story. So here's where Persia, when they would defeat someone in the ancient world, when a country would, would go to war against another country and defeat them, the concept was that everybody held back then was that means our gods are stronger than your gods. Now imagine you're living in Persia and you're a Jew and you've forgotten what, about your God or forgotten what he said. And what are you going to start thinking after a while? Yeah, my God is not as strong as the Persian gods. Now, in reality, God told the people of Israel, I'm the only God, number one. Number two, I'm going to allow them to defeat you. I'm going to allow them to defeat you for a reason. There's a purpose in this. And then I will bring you back because I have the power to do that. In the end, I'm going to win. And that story is our story as well. Whatever it is that we're going through, whatever setbacks, whatever it is, God, in the end, is going to win. And those that are a part of his grace, by his grace, are part of him, united with him, are going to win with him. And then we're not likely to sacrifice if we're cynical. Now, it's kind of a, for some reason in this day and age, or you know, even among Christians, cynical Christians oftentimes like wear it like a badge. Like, yeah, I'm really cynical, you know. The, the reality is, if you're a really cynical person, the reality is that you've been assimilated or you're being assimilated. And we're all cynical to some degree, right? Unless you're an optimist. <laughs> so, so the reality is that Christianity, there's nothing cynical within Christianity. That's why I'm saying you're assimilated because it's not Christian to be assimilated. It's not biblical. It's not the Christian worldview. It's not part of the story. And the whole culture is cynical. So you've done nothing. It's no badge. You've just become like just about everybody else. That's what you've become. Nothing special about that. Paul Miller, speaking of prayer, says, cynicism is so pervasive that at times it feels like a presence. And behind the spirit of the age lies an unseen personal evil presence, a spirit. If Satan can't stop you from praying, then he will try to rob the fruit of praying by dulling your soul. Satan cannot create but he can corrupt. What he's saying there about prayer, cynicism and prayer, is the same thing about sacrifice. You're not likely to sacrifice if you're a cynical person who just believes, eh, never, nothing ever works out. Yeah, you know. That's the way it just is. That's not a belief, a robust belief in God and a robust belief in prayer, a robust belief that I need to be a part of the solution so that God can work through me, even if that means sacrifice. Kind of courage that Esther and Mordecai and we need in a time of desperate need will only be born in the conviction that God is, that God exists, that he is all-powerful, that he has a plan, that it's a good plan, that we are part of his good plan. We've got to believe that. And when we claim that we have faith, but we fail to believe this, our soul is dying. Our soul is dying. The death 
a, a dead soul may be what Mordecai's warning is to Esther. You don't stand up now and sacrifice for the sake of God's people, then your soul is going to die. And Esther chooses faith and she chooses life. Conviction is awakened in Esther as it was in Mordecai. Cosper puts it this way, Esther put herself at risk for the good of the city, which Jeremiah had said he wanted the exiles, God had said through Jeremiah, work for the good of the city. She does it for the good of God's people, and she does it for the good of her own soul. And you and I need to listen to Mordecai's warning and ask the question, will we, like Esther, choose faith and choose life, a life built on a conviction that moves us to courageously make sacrifices for the sake of God's kingdom?